I am Andrea Butcher, and this is Being at Work. Being a leader is hard. So on this show, I set out to talk with experienced leaders to learn from their pivotal moments, how they led through the challenges we can all relate to but are often unheard. Today's leadership lesson comes from my friend and fellow learning professional, Rebecca Ellis, or should I say Dr. Ellis, as Rebecca has a PhD in organizational development and has an impressive background doing great work with a lot of passion and energy. She makes things happen through relationships and a lot of tenacity. Rebecca has always been a risk taker, and today she shares a pivotal moment in her career when she was told no, but did it anyway. Listen in to hear how she navigated what could have been a really tricky situation to realize the vision that she believed in. So I say I'm an accidental tourist in this field, and I think so many of us are. Um, We don't get into HR or change maybe as a a degree early in life. uh, I think maybe we're just not as exposed to it or know that it exists. Certainly I didn't. Um, I grew up in a small town in a family that all had small businesses and they didn't have a person appointed to HR or to change or certainly not org development. So this career kind of found me um, over a course of a lot of interesting steps, uh, the first of which was being a math teacher. Mm. So I studied math. Um, I was really passionate about changing people's lives and helping them develop. And I had a propensity, I guess, to understand math and like numbers and be quite analytical. But the main reason I chose that profession is because I had never had a female math teacher. And so I thought it was different, kind of a, you know, glass ceiling breaking Mm -hmm. type of role, which is pretty funny because there are a lot of female math teachers out there, (laughs) but I had never had one. And so for me, that would make me an anomaly. And Mm -hmm. I think I do just like doing things that are maybe different or not expected. So I didn't care for teaching a whole lot. Um, There were a lot of things about it. Um, Ultimately, the lack of like pay for performance and how hard I was working to bring really unique solutions to the classroom, yet making the same as people who printed off spreadsheets every day and worksheets or didn't didn't do anything creative really to engage students. And, um, you know, the guy sitting in the room next to me, he was making about 15 grand more than I was on our little union pay scale just because he had been there longer. And he literally sat and played solitaire like all day long. And I just didn't want to be him. I didn't want that sort of lack of really what I would call pay for performance now to um, create a different habit or behavior in me that I knew I wouldn't be happy with long term. Mm. So I um, left teaching children and went into corporate learning. And that's really where I learned about HR and ultimately leadership development. And um, in, I think, 2004, one of my HR leaders sent me to a conference on org development, and I just fell in love with Mm. the idea. Actually, David Cooper Ryder was there, and he was talking to Pritchett Inquiry and all this positive psychology that just got me hooked and so um, I decided then I needed to, to get a degree in that as well. So from math teacher to director at Allegiant, but right. clearly your passion for people shines through all of that growth, your passion for growth and development. Yeah. And any role that I've ended up with in the meantime that isn't about developing leaders I've had my own personal teams and people to pour that into. And so I'm most happy when I get to see others um, grow and thrive. And so it is interesting. I think we can find that 
even in church and volunteer like other ways too. Um, when my actual formal title hasn't given me those kinds of opportunities. So clearly that's my purpose. I joke that my personal motto is borrowed from 4-H because I, as I mentioned, did show sheep. I was a farm kid growing <laughs> up and 4-H's motto is to make the best better. And my second strength is maximizer, which is almost the identical mm-hmm. definition. And so in a way that's become kind of part of my code, like the core, which I, I don't know, as long as I'm living that purpose, I make the best better. That's right. Good. Yes. Well, you have a lot of stories that highlight that, but there's one in particular that I know you're really you're really passionate about, just because it really represents you and who you are. So tell us about that situation. You were told no, but you yeah. had a driving force that led you to keep going. Yeah. So it's funny um, because I am a pretty compliant person, like really very compliant. I stress about not being in line with a policy or knowing it, and um, it's it's funny. Because at the same time, I'm, I think what you would label a positive deviant and positive deviants are people who do a behavior that is not a norm, a bit outlier because they see a need to close a gap that will make life better for others. And most positive deviants actually do their work in social settings. And so if you Google the term, you'll see examples of people who figured out how to have clean water in third world countries by doing something deviant, something opposite of what the standard protocol was, and yet had this amazing outcome. And um, for me, I um, did start a career in corporate learning many years ago. And I was traveling a lot. I was going 90% of the time. I was in the office literally every other Friday. Um, And the rest of the time, I would almost fly every night to a new location. And so I'd be on the ground and teach for about four hours. And then I would move to a new location. And I was teaching clinicians how to record patient treatment time on a Palm Pilot. Like, I don't even know if Palm Pilots exist now, but that was such a novel in the early 2000s, such a novel thing. And we would hook them up to modems and hear that terrible now uh, modem sound. And the data would be sent, you know, back to headquarters. And so I would sit down with them. Usually we had six, seven employees in a location and I would teach them, you know, the click path to getting this patient billing um, recorded. And inevitably, someone wouldn't be able to attend. They would have a sick kid and have missed work that day. The only day I'm scheduled to be there ever. Um, or they would have, you know, a family emergency or a patient who was really in a not stable situation where they needed to be attending to them. And so I would leave there almost every setting thinking, oh, gosh, but I missed someone like I didn't fulfill my duty to get them all up to speed because, you know, someone wasn't able to attend. And so I was working on my master's actually in instructional systems um, at IU at the time. And I thought, well, I'm being taught how to do computer based learning. I should just create a computer based module that I could leave behind on a little CD that for those who didn't make it, they could then do it. Ultimately, though, I also thought this could replace me. I don't need to be out here traveling. I don't need to be in a different hotel, a different airport every night because this thing um, could be done more on their own time or independent. And I think it's as good. Like I actually felt in what I could produce, it got them what they needed And so I started working on that a bit as a master's project, but I also started sharing with my leader, here's what I think our next evolution is. We need to 
you know, get this out here where it's more independent. We could post it on a server. People could download or we could send them the CDs. But these little simulations, I mean, even in the early 2000s, there were decent software simulation tools and not that terribly difficult to create. And immediately she was like, no, nope, we're doing it in person. That's the best way to teach people. You're going to continue traveling. This is the way we'll do it almost like forever, like definitive. This is the way we'll do it. I was like, oh, I don't I don't know. But OK, that's um, an interesting point of view. But she said, but let me talk with the VP because maybe he'll have a different thought. So I go in, I pitch it to the VP. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to create these CDs. I'd like for this to be the way that we teach this system. I think it's more scalable. When a new hire comes, I'm not there. So they don't get that benefit of the knowledge. And, you know, I have been leaving some behind and people found it useful. And it was like, "Mm -mm, no. Anyway, I just kind of kept at it and making it better because I was like, it it is a little slow and it is a little clunky to mail these CDs out. And the Internet hadn't quite picked up with the bandwidth to handle these simulations. We we did not have an LMS. We didn't really have a good way to host them or track who was taking them. So anyway, I just kept going at it. And And I don't think I did it necessarily secretively, but I knew that it was like dangerous for me to promote it too heavily. Right. And so I did uh, just continue to kind of push that rope. So even though you were told no, like you did it anyway. I did do it anyway. And I probably used a bit the excuse of school. Well, I have a project to deliver anyway. But it didn't keep me from also sharing it internally in the organization. And ultimately, 9-11 happened, um, you know, in our our serious tragedy that really had significant impacts to air travel. And I couldn't just show up a half hour before a flight and jump to the next city. And, you know, then it was like you're sitting for two hours every airport. So 20 hours a week, I'm downtime flying each way. And then actually I got pregnant with our daughter. And so I couldn't travel that much. And I think those the combination of those two, which were within the same uh, few months, helped me finally have enough reason to get off the road. And it did have implications for my role in those of peers because it made us less necessary, um, maybe the scale. Um, And so our department did shift a little bit its makeup over um, the next couple of years to focusing more on independent computer-based training and less of this travel-based, which some of us were more skilled for than others, right? So it was a risk in, in that way, but everyone landed in a better place. So, and then I was soon the, the director of the department within a couple of years as a result of kind of some of that forward thinking. So those that had initially said no, like yeah. as they saw this being rolled out and evolving, did they, did they circle back and say, Hey, this, what, yeah. what was the response? So I would say they were never really champions, but they also weren't deterring the efforts um, or, or squashing them, but um, they weren't. It wasn't ever their favorite um, idea. And I think ultimately there was a bit of just the political, like I wanted to build this empire and this is stable of trainers was how I was going to be known in the organization. And um, anyone kind of working against that was was pushing, I think, a bit against. But I I would say one remained a a sort of reluctant fan (laughs) of of me and the other was probably just a more of a neutral sort of bystander. And, you know, our careers just kind of took different forks in the road where one went more clinical and one went more HR. And so we weren't necessarily competing for space. So it wasn't that big of a threat. 
I think it was like my ideas were threatening, but I wasn't, if that makes sense. And, um, you know, ultimately it paid off, but. Well, it sounds like you had trust and you had credibility with them. You were doing good work. And so you were in a position to challenge the process a bit, push the envelope a bit. It also sounds like you had visions. You saw like a broader, longer term business need. Right. You had the expertise to bring that to life. Yeah. Do you think those are the key factors that really kept you going? I do. I do. And then I think the environmental factors of expense and time just helped push it over the edge. Right. So, you know, some good ideas are just born too early. And Mm. this might be an example of where that was the case. And it just needed kind of other dynamics like bandwidth and uh, more this being more of a norm to catch up. But yeah, I, I, um, and I don't resent that they were against it. You know, there's a lot of things that, that people bring forward that aren't good ideas that do need a devil's advocate approach. Um, but the fact that they weren't willing to even entertain it as a, a pilot, I think, is what was most maybe frustrating for me and why I just decided to make my own, right, and kind of leave it behind without much of their input, Yeah. And I so appreciate your attitude around it. I think the positive deviant is such a good term to use here because so here you are a leader with credibility, with trust. You know, I think about and bringing forth a solution that's unpopular initially. I think about all the times I've brought forth an idea and just stopped at my, stopped at the no. Yeah. But you didn't do that, but you continue to do great work. So it's like those things coexist in your story that I'm going to continue to do great work and I'm going to continue to see where this goes. Yeah. You say you paid attention to the technology, you keep kept evolving it right. as you could. Yeah. I think if you're really convicted around something being the right solution for the future and solving a business problem that you know exists, even if others aren't quite there yet, that ultimately it'll pay off for you to mm-hmm. keep pushing Um, I think when I push on ideas that aren't popular today, those are the things I think about. What are the business dynamics that they know about that I don't know about? What are are some additional pieces of context or the economy or current state of business or our customer needs that I'm maybe just not considering? And maybe they're right in pushing against this idea. But until I can understand those things better, I'm not going to kind of give up yet. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, I think ultimately there's a lot of dynamics that can easily kill an idea. The ones that we listen to are awfully internal. And that's often what I'm pushing in organizations is I know this might make work, our world more difficult or more complex, but is it making life simpler for our customer? Mm-hmm. And if so, then it's still probably the right idea, even if it's a bit more expensive or a bit like, is it, are they willing to pay for it? If they're willing to pay for this, it's probably worth it, even if it seems hard or expensive um, in the short term. When you got the initial no, because you said that uh, they were pretty quick to say, I don't think so. Right. How did, how did you feel in that moment? You're bringing forth this good idea, getting shot down. I'm sure that my first reaction was that of frustration and why don't they get it? Like the CD cost a dollar, my flight's 700, you know, I'm sure those things went through my mind, but pretty quickly then it was like, I need to prove them wrong. And there's been a bit of that in me forever. I actually had a good friend 
not that close, but like a family friend. When I graduated high school, she's like, you're not going to be a lawyer. I just thought you would be a lawyer. And I was like, Brenda, what made you think I was going to be a lawyer? And I'm like, am I? And her husband was a lawyer. So she appreciated them. Like it wasn't like a slam, right? I was like, what about me made me seem, I don't know, argumentative or just this like take a position. But she was like, yeah, I just saw you as a lawyer. I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. No, I'm going to be a teacher. And maybe in a way there, there's some similarities there, but um, I have always been pretty convicted to want to prove people wrong, um, especially if it's about me. Like I compete with myself. I don't compete with others. I don't find joy in that. And I think there's a lot of that that like really starts to work at people's psyche. Like, oh, they got that title. They got, it's like, I don't care, really care so much, but if I don't feel like I'm doing something better or different, I'm frustrated, right? So that's probably, it was like frustration and then like, I'm going to prove them wrong. And I'm going to do it in a way that is hopefully going to protect my career. But even if it doesn't, that's okay. Because if I'm doing what's right for the business and I become a casualty as a result of that, I can live with that, you know, because there'll be someone else who will want this problem solved. So I was willing to Again, I wasn't like walking around parading it like, let me show you my new, but I was willing to keep pushing that envelope when as long as I felt like the business needs still existed, that problem still exists and we hadn't solved it. So what advice would you give to our listeners who no doubt are coming up against resistance? They feel compelled around something and, oh, why can't I just push this through? Yeah. I think it's not easy to say build resilience, be resilient. But I I do think the people who I see being most successful, particularly in fields and industries and careers that require a lot of change, the people who survive well in that have a tendency to be pretty resilient. And um, you can get that a lot of different ways. I'm, I'm definitely not an expert in how to build resilience. But for me, typically, it's been having people around you who believe in you and are willing to kind of be that sounding board. And be like, no, that that's a legit place. Like, okay, that might not be the right hill to die on. So yeah, Rebecca, you may have to just get over that that idea is not going to get sold. But this one, I can see your your case and where you're going. And, um, you know, chin up, you'll get there. Just stay in it, stay in the, in the fight. Um, so I try and keep in my little personal board of directors, people who are realists and people who are kind of und- bounded thinkers and who kind of helped me balance some of that. And I think you need somebody who can tell when you've had bad days, you know, and not just try and like absorb it all yourself and think you're like able to heal yourself and all of that. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of like being told no, because it gives me something to have energy for at times. Yeah. So many good takeaways. (laughs) You've provided so much encouragement for doing it anyways, you know, not, not allowing the resistance to be a stop, but instead like leaning into that and then saying, how can I, what can I do to bring this to life? Thank you for that encouragement. Yeah. If our listeners want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. LinkedIn is probably the best way to connect with me. And it's Rebecca McGuire Ellis that you'll find there. And um, I also have a podcast that I do with friends and we have a website, which is leadtravelpray.com, where we talk about our three passions, which are leadership, 
global travel and our faith. And um, those two are really good ways to kind of connect and see what I'm up to. Um, always appreciate kind of building my network and learning from all the smart people who I can be surrounded by. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to never miss a being at work story.